We are on class number four. If you look on the back of your handout, you'll see there where we're at. What's so special about being a Baptist? We've got two more. Next week, what, what am I missing? It's just uh, with regard to church membership, what other items do I need to know about? That's really the idea of that question. And then finally, where do we go from here? So, so kind of the direction um, that we go once we want to join the church or once we are members, what, what do we do from there? That's where we're heading. But today we want to answer the question, what's so special about being a Baptist? How many of you grew up in a non-Baptist background? Okay, several. Okay, what, what denominations? Catholic, Catholic. Episcopalian, Church of Christ. Okay, so uh, the rest of you grew up in a Baptist background or no no church background? Okay. Um, today I'd like to explain why we as a church call ourselves a, ba- a Baptist over and against all of the other denominations that are out there. And uh, really, um, Baptist probably... Um, Probably not the best way to describe it as a denomination, but uh, we won't get into that. I, uh, denomination is more closely connected and actually um, more interdependent. And we'll see one of the points of, of the Baptist um, understanding, the Baptist belief, is autonomy of the local church. That is, that, that we believe that there is no um, governing authority outside of us, outside of the Scriptures, outside of our, our um, individual church. So we'll talk about that here in just a second. So we want to look at Baptists uh, against some of these other uh, denominations that are out there. In order to facilitate it, we're going to use perhaps a familiar acrostic. Um, so if you look at the capital letters for each thing, they spell out Baptist. And if you want to get ahead, you can start writing them down. I'll, um, I'll, I'll try to point them out as we go along. But um, that's, that's what it, it says. Now, the, the way that Baptists came about was not because they had a really good acrostic and they decided to do that. Um, we'll, we'll talk about how they came about here in just a second. But before we do, let's pray and, and ask God for help as we um, think about some of these principles from the Scripture. Lord, we're thankful for Christ. And Lord, there are many things in life that, that uh, trouble us. And, and yet, what we need most of all is our Savior, as we've just sung. And we praise You for that. And we praise You that, that all of eternity will be about Him, the One who was slain, the One who is given for us, and, and now who, who is resurrected and living for us and is the first fruits of our resurrection. We know that we will be resurrected as Christians because He was first resurrected. Lord, thank You for um, our Baptist heritage and we pray that You'd help us to understand a little bit more about where we came from and also um, what we believe and why it's so important that we believe these things. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the um, some of the key tenets, the key points of the Baptist faith, let's look at the origin of Baptists. Uh, first, the first possibility or the first suggestion that some people have, even in in, in other Baptist churches is called the the succession of churches view. Succession of churches view. It's the, it's the idea of the trail of blood. There's a book that or a pamphlet that came out a while ago and that believed that Baptist churches can be traced all the way back to the time of Christ. So you ever heard of a guy named John the Baptist? He was the first 
of the Baptists. And then throughout history, um, then they they um, they continued to exist and and they still exist today. And um, they this view actually sees that that when Jesus said, "I will build my church," he was speaking about the Baptist church only. Um, you heard you probably heard of the the joke that where a man arrives in heaven and and Peter asks, "What religion are you?" And the man says, "Methodist." So Peter says, um, "Your your room is in room number eighteen, so head down that way. But as you pass room number eight, just be quiet, okay?" And then the next guy comes to heaven and and Peter says, "What religion are you?" And he says, "Lutheran." And he's like, "All right, your room is number twelve, but just as you go past room number eight, just be very quiet." And uh, then the next guy, Presbyterian, yours is in room number 11, Just but as you go past room number 8, just please be really quiet. And the man said, well, I can understand there's different rooms for different denominations. We might have some similarities there and might want to see some of our old friends, but, but why do I have to be quiet when I go past room number 8? And Peter says, well, the Baptists are in room number 8 and they think they're the only ones that are here. And And that can be the idea... When it comes to uh, when it comes to how we look at other denominations, now I, I'm I, I'm a strong Baptist, and I think that we have um, we have understood properly the scriptures and do understand and and actually um, uh, we we use the scriptures properly in the way that we administer the ordinances and so on, but. You know, there there is this other idea like this succession of churches view that says, you know, we're the only ones that have it right. Everybody else needs to become a Baptist. Um, the Trail of Blood view is, has several problems. First of all, if you know anything about church history, you know that Baptists didn't even begin till the 1600s. And so what they have to do, the, the, the succession of churches view has to do, is they have to kind of um, uh, force some of these previous... Uh, denominations or people groups into their Baptist faith. So they, they start to look back through history and, well, they're not Baptist, but they're really Baptistic. And so they kind of do that and that's how they get that trail from Christ all the way to themselves. But I think that fails on many fronts. It, it's based on a lot of assumptions as well and it forces other groups into the Baptist mold. The second possibility that people say where Baptists came from was succession of principles view. They can't trace specific churches back to Christ, but they can trace the principles that they're teaching back to Christ. And um, I think it has similar problems as the previous one. Others believe that Baptists came from the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were um, a, a pacifist group and they they also were uh, very isolationist. But But if you look at church history, it seems to me that that the Baptists came from the English separatists um, uh, from England there, the, the Puritans in the 17th century. And it wasn't a, um, it wasn't a Jehovah's Witness type thing, like we're going to develop a brand new religion. It was actually a rediscovering of old principles in the Scripture. Let's go back to the Scriptures and see what's true and... and um, and then derive and come to an understanding of what church ought to be, what belief in Christ ought to look like, and that's where the Baptist came from. So, uh, any questions on that? All right, the following eight tenets 
are vitally important to how we think about the church, how we think about um, the progress and the processes within the church. But there are two here that I'm going to point out that are distinctly Baptist. That is, they are over and against all these others. Because what you're going to find here, like this first one, biblical authority. I mean, there's Presbyterians believe in biblical authority. You know, Lutherans believe, the, especially the conservative ones, believe in biblical authority, Methodists, and so on. So, so that doesn't distinguish us. It doesn't set us apart as Baptists. All of these are important, but there are two that are essential to us being who we are. And I'm going to point those out when we get there. First, biblical authority. That means that the Bible is four things. Inspired, inerrant, infallible, and irreplaceable. Again, a number of believers all across the globe, whether they call themselves Baptist or not, will hold to this very important principle. That the Bible is inspired. That all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and that it is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Is inspired. It is God's Word. We, we can count on it as true. So if we want to know what God wants about a specific situation, what He wants us to believe, then we go to the Scriptures. Secondly, the Bible is inerrant. That is, without error. There, since God is without error, we would expect for what He says to be without error. right? So, so the Bible, in its original autograph, was without error. Okay, now, we can make errors in our translation of it, but in, it, in the original, it was written without error, and we have a number of people who've done a great work in preserving that and translating it in, into our Bible so that we can be confident um, in what we read. Number three, the Bible is infallible. So, in, inerrant is without error. Infallible is unable to make an error. So, you don't have to worry about you know, taking a, a piece of Scripture and using it for your life or for the life of someone else and thinking, you know, at some point it's going to cause some kind of sin or cause some kind of an error. If God said it, it's true. It is incapable of making an error. There, there's nothing that can replace it. Uh, or there's nothing that, that um, can, can, can be contradictory. contradictory. That is, you may see something in the Scripture when you're reading in one part, you know, and then you read another part, it looks like there's two opposing views here, contradictory. But but actually the Bible is... Those are just apparent contradictions in art. We don't understand maybe how they fully relate because of our finiteness, our finity, but, but ultimately the Bible is without error and incapable of making errors. And then the Bible is irreplaceable. There's nothing that can replace or stand above the Word of God. Uh, we would be lost without it. Uh, it is our supreme authority for life and practice. And so that means that as a church, as I mentioned before uh, in the Why Join a Church class, as a church, we are going to make the Word of God central to what we do just as the people who started the church did. Okay, They made the Word of God central and I think um, the church has been faithful in doing that for 76 years and we want to continue that. That is, that, that we are going to make all of our service revolve around the Word of God, not around the individual people, not around personalities, not around programs. It's, it's primarily about what God's Word says. And so we're going to speak from the Word of God. We're going to speak clearly and with urgency 
and with a with a uh, a view to persuade. We're going to do everything that we do in this church according to what the Word of God says. We're going to see what God says about various things with regard to, you know, what to include in Scripture: prayer and singing and reading the Scripture and fellowship and preaching and so on. All right, second one up there on the board if you need it: autonomy of the local church. Autonomy of the local church. This is another important doctrine or belief of the Baptist, but not it doesn't set us apart. There are other churches that believe in autonomy of the local church, specifically congregational churches. But but let me just give you some other types of of ways that people govern their individual churches just to set that against what we do and what we think is biblical. So first, the papal system. Some of you said you grew up in, in the Catholic church. Okay. In the papal system, the church's ultimate authority resides in the Pope. Okay, you want to know what you believe as a church? You want to know how you should practice things? Well, then you go to what the Pope has said. You find out from him. Um, obviously, there's there's a hierarchy that goes down, so you may not have to go directly to him. But you understand overall, the Pope is is king essentially. And then there's an Episcopalian system, very similar to the papal system. But instead of the authority residing in one person, it resides in a, a group of people, bishops. Um, and so you have a succession of bishops all the way, supposedly, all the way back to the apostles. And the reason, back to the Pope, the reason that they think he's so important is because he supposedly has been uh, handing down this authority from Peter. On this rock I will build my church, Peter the first Pope. And then he passes it all the way down to the current Pope, supposedly. So, Episcopalian system is very similar, except for he's passing it down from the apostles to the various bishops, and now these current set of bishops over the Episcopalian church are who rule. Thirdly, the Presbyterian system, where the church's ultimate authority resides in the elders, or the sessions, and the presbytery, and the synods, and the general assembly. So, you have this hierarchy. You want to know what you believe in a Presbyterian church? You want to know how you ought to practice things within your specific church? Well, you need to go and find out from the, the group that's above you, the synod or the general assembly. And they'll tell you what they what you need to believe and so on. And um, so those are the, the, the three alternatives. We believe in a congregational system. A congregational system. That is that the church's ultimate authority resides in the members of the local church. Now, we just got finished talking about the importance of biblical authority. That is, when it comes to matters of doctrine and practice, we, we go to the Scriptures. But, but the Scriptures don't always tell us what exactly to do. In other words, you know, how do you know which pastor to choose? How do you know which deacons to choose? Right? How, do you, how do you know um, how, how to handle budget issues? Does, does the Scripture tell you, how, you know, the dollar amount to, to choose and, and that sort of thing? So we believe in a congregational system. You see, these other ones, they, they use some other organization outside of them. We are saying when it comes to matters that the Scriptures are not clear about, it comes down to the congregational authority, that the congregation is the one who chooses uh, the will of God in that situation or, chooses, or, or determines, expresses, maybe a better way to put it, what the Spirit wants us to do. And so that's why um, when we send a pastor away, it comes down to a congregational vote. When we send a member away, it comes down to a congregational vote. When we bring in a member, when we bring in a pastor, it comes down to congregation. Eric. Yeah. 
Yes, they are. Um, a convention, there, there's kind of a, a, a level or a continuum of, of um, association when it comes to these different types of groups. And the closest possible one is denomination. So denomination, you are integrally linked with that person. Uh, then you have, um, I think the next one would be assembly. That's more like the Presbyterian. And then I think after that's convention. And then from that, it goes down to like fellowship, which is just a fellowships like, um, you know, we used to be a part of the, the IFBAM, the International Fellowship of Baptist Churches in Michigan or something like that. And so that's just a, a voluntary organization that we're a part of. We can enter in at any time and pull out at any time. You know, we're not bound by that. So convention's kind of right there in the middle. But at the same time, the congregational churches that I know of in the Southern Baptist or the Southern Baptist churches that I know of are congregational. That is, that they ask the church, you know, okay, who is it that we that we ought to have for our next pastor? There's not like a... Because um, what you can have is an elder rule situation where the, the pastors basically choose their successor. You know, they they don't even let the congregation choose. They choose the deacons, everything, you know. So, yes, Southern Baptist churches would be, in general, they would be congregational churches. So, autonomy of the local church. Uh, we believe that when it comes to um, items that, that don't, that aren't specific in the Scripture, then it comes down to the congregational vote. And the reason for that, I think, is because if you look in the New Testament, Paul, uh, who is he writing to? Primarily, he does write to some pastors in the pastoral epistles, but think about the other letters that he writes. To whom is he writing? To the churches. To the church at Rome. To the church at Colossae. To the church at Philippi. And, and so on. You can just go through almost all of his 13 letters. Almost all of them. I think 10 of them are written to churches. And he's telling them how to conduct themselves. Right? First Timothy 1. I, I'm writing this so you can, I can tell you how to conduct yourself within the household of God. That means that the authority ought to reside within the congregation. And it is the congregation's responsibility to maintain purity and to maintain pure doctrine and to guard the ordinances and to elect its own officers. So we could, we could um, look up several verses there, but, but for sake of time, we'll uh, keep moving. Any questions on first two? Independent, thank you. Yeah, it would um, would make sense. I was trying to think. International of Michigan? Yeah. Independent, fundamental. Okay. Okay. So that would be an association. So maybe that's not even a fellowship. Maybe a fellowship would be more... Fellowship is one of the lowest levels of Ohio Bible fellowship. And I think maybe what we're doing with First of Sterling Heights or First of Troy, you know, when we get together with them occasionally, um, that would be more like a fellowship. It's kind of a loose... Um, uh, uh, getting together, combining association with them. So, yeah, informal. Yeah, good way to put it. All right, next, priesthood of all believers. Priesthood of all believers. Priesthood of all believers has to do with our understanding that each individual person, that each individual Christian, has the ability to go to God on their own apart from a human mediator. Okay, so you don't have to come to me if you want to talk to God, right? The Scriptures are clear that you can pray to God directly because you can go to God through God the Son because He is your mediator. That means that it's different from the Old Testament model, which is you had to go through the individual priest 
in order to have your sins atoned for, in order to you, for you to make um, requests on some occasions, uh, specific, some specific requests, you'd go, you'd go to the priest. That's not the way it is now that Christ has come. And, and now that Christ has come, you are individual priests. The reason we know that is because of 1 Peter, he calls, that, calls the believers that at the very beginning. Right? You, that, that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Each one of you, if you have the Spirit of God living in you, you are an individual priest. And so you have access, direct access to God. Hebrews, right? Hebrews 4 um, says that you should go boldly to the throne of grace. Not through your priest, not through your pastor, but you should go boldly through the throne of grace because Christ has become your merciful and faithful high priest. He, he's the one that allows you access. Basically says, you know, he take, takes you to God and says, hey, he's with me. And, and you don't have to turn him away. Um, I'm on his side. I'm on his side. And so that means that each of us have a responsibility, um, not just the pastor, but, but each of us have responsibility to minister to other believers, to live a holy life, and to offer our bodies as sacrifices to God. Priesthood of all believers. This is another tenet or a belief of ours that is not distinct to Baptists. There are other non-Baptists that believe this, but, but we do believe this very strongly. And, and um, we think that it comes from the Scripture. Number four, two ordinances. Two ordinances. Now, we do believe that, that there are two ordinances. There are other churches that believe that there are two ordinances. There are other b- churches that believe in the two ordinances that we believe in. But the way that we do our ordinances is distinct from other denominations. That's what I want to make clear. So this is important. This is an important one because it establishes for us who we are as a people and who we will include as a people. And the two ordinances are, what are they? Baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. Okay, Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning uh, after the, the service. Now, there are other churches that are non-baptistic or, or non-baptist, I should say, that, that would celebrate these same sorts of ordinances, these two exact ordinances, and they would celebrate them in the way that we celebrate them, but they don't call themselves Baptists. So, for example, um, Jennifer mentioned the Ohio Bible Fellowship. Those are churches that are Baptistic churches. You would feel comfortable in Ohio Bible Fellowship Church. Um, they, they are uh, good churches. I mean, if you, you're okay with the Ohio part. Then there's a community Bible in Trenton. Ken Brown has been here a couple times over the past several years, and he's preached. He's done a series before as well on a Wednesday night. Uh, his church is called Community Bible. They would believe the same thing that we do about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Another example that may be more familiar is Grace Community in, in California, uh, John MacArthur's church they also would practice the same ordinances as us. So, so when I say only Baptists do it, I'm saying only Baptistic. That's what I really mean. Um, they, they basically uh, borrow our beliefs, but without taking the name. So um, the two ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is an ordinance, a sign, uh, a memorial that shows that something has already taken place in salvation. It's, it's a symbol of saving faith. It reminds us of what's happened to us in salvation. And then um, the Lord's Supper is a memorial of Christ's work on the cross where we, um, we, we practice 
the Lord's Supper. Specifically, there are a number of different ways that you can practice communion. We believe in close communion. And uh, we looked at this last week briefly that, that only people who have become members or who have been saved and baptized and have become members of this church or a church like ours should be taking the Lord's Supper. That's who we invite to take it every time. That's something that's in our original statement of faith and I think it's actually biblical. There are two other types of communion. There's closed communion with a D. Closed communion means that only people from our church, only members of our church can take it. So even if you're from out of town, you happen to be visiting our church this morning and you're a church of like faith and practice, you can't take the Lord's Supper with us. That would be closed communion. That's not what we do. Um, we, we allow any believer that is a member that's in good standing with God um, to take the Lord's Supper with us even if they're not a member of our church. And then there's open communion. Um, this is most Baptist churches. I don't know of any Baptist churches that practice open communion. Open communion just means if you claim to be a Christian, you can have the Lord's Supper with us. And we see that as a problem because um, we, we don't want to give people a wrong impression about their standing with God when they're not a member of a church. We think it's that important to become a member of a church. I, I mentioned you know, a couple of times ago that um, membership is not essential to being a Christian. In other words, you don't have, God's not going to ask if you're a member of a church when you get to heaven. But neither is being at your house while being a husband, right? So I, if I were away for a month, would I still be the husband of Jennifer? Yes. Okay. But if I'm away for two years, three years, four years, ten years, twenty years, am I still her husband? Well, maybe in name only, right? But it cer- certainly calls into question my commitment to her, doesn't it? The same thing is true about membership. It's not essential. I can be away, right, and still be a husband. But, and I could not be a member and still be a Christian. So that's what I'm saying. However, it does start to call into question your commitment to the Scriptures and the pattern that was set up in the book of Acts to join. And that's why I think these ordinances are so important because it helps guard us on the front end, baptism, and it helps guard us on the, on the, the back end, that is, the people that shouldn't be taking the Lord's Supper with us because they're not members. So, uh, the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. I, I mentioned why we think they're ordinances because you know that Catholics, you may know that Catholics have seven ordinances or what do they call them? No. Sacraments. Thank you. Yeah, so they have um, you know, matrimony, ordination, confirmation of matrimony, penance, baptism, Eucharist. And other churches have ordinances like foot washing and love feast and so on. Um, but we just take the, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the reason for that is those four points that I laid out for you. Um, I, I think those are, are good ways to think about why we take these as serious and necessary. Any questions on that before we move on to number five? All right. Next is individual soul liberty. This is Several other churches would believe this. Several other well-meaning believers would accept this belief. Okay, uh, So we're not claiming this that Baptists are the only ones that do this. But it is important. We do see it as important. So if, if um, priesthood of all believers deals with our access to what? Or to whom? Our access to God, right? Our priesthood. Think about it. Priest, he's the one that's speaking to God on behalf of the people. So that's priesthood of all believers. Individual soul liberty 
has to do with our individual ability to interpret the Scriptures. Okay, so so before, you might think, well, I have to have somebody, and, and you may even have this sort of feeling, you know, if I want to know what something means, then I have to go to fill in the blank. Right? You have to f- go to this authority, this pastor, this priest. He's going to be the one that tells me. And that's why you can just leave your Bible at home for the most part in a Catholic church, right? Because he'll tell you what you need to think. But what we try to do here, and we think it's consistent with the Scripture, is we want you to bring your Bible to church. We want you to follow along in the Scripture. We want you to test what I am saying to see if it's true. How can you do that? How do you have the ability to do that? Anyone know? What do you have? Who do you have that lives inside of you? The Holy Spirit, right? Christ's Spirit lives inside of each one of you if you're a believer. And so you now have been given the ability to interpret, to, to be illuminated to the truth of Scripture. Um, now, obviously, um, that doesn't mean you can just take any passage and, and just say, well, this is what I feel like it means. I mean, it does require some study. It does require some thought. But the Holy Spirit of God resides in you. That's why congregational authority also works, by the way. Because it's not just the leaders of the church who have the Holy Spirit within them. They should. But, but, it, but it's the congregation. The individual members also have the Holy Spirit in them. And so they should be able to make decisions when it comes to how the church is run. And the same thing is true when it comes to our access to the Scriptures. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians uh, 2. And I'll show you this. 1 Corinthians 2. And would someone read for us verses 14 to 16? And we, I think Paul's talking about um, uh, a we talking about himself and his readers, and his readers are Corinthians. And if you read through the book of Corinthians, you find lots of troubled situations going on, and yet he's still still saying we have the mind of Christ. Okay, some of you are immature believers, Paul's saying, and yet we all have the mind of Christ. And that's because before we came to Christ, we were things were spiritually appraised. It, it was. I mean, we could understand letters on a page or if someone explained the Gospel to us or explained spiritual things to us, we could understand them, right? But, it w- but we didn't understand the significance of them and that's what the Spirit comes in and does. He illumines us. He turns a light on that, that we couldn't see before. We couldn't understand things as we do now. And as a believer, you have that ability. And we believe in that very strongly as Baptists. Number, what are we at? Number six. This is probably the one that distinguishes us most. Saved church membership. This one will distinguish us from all other denominations. Okay, Saved church membership. Now, the word church means called out assembly. Called out assembly. Well, called out of what? Called out of the world and to God. To following Christ. We are um, the church. The called out ones. And we think that it's important for us to uh, to have a church that's made up of only saved people, only believers, because it's a reflection of their uh, th- that person's own condition. See, when when we 
work hard to guard our boundaries when it comes to our church. We work hard to make our church made up only of believers. It actually says something about to the, the people who are actually members, right? Because if anybody can join our church, let's say we have a mixture of both believers and unbelievers, um, what does that tell the unbeliever about who's a member of our church? What does that tell them about their condition before God? Hey, I'm a member of... No, it actually tells them that it is authentic. It, it confuses them, right? Because it's like, I'm a member of Ambassador Baptist Church, so I must be okay with God. You see? And, and we actually do harm to their soul and to the other believers that are in the membership. And, and we... Uh, I think that goes against what the Scriptures teach. We actually give that unbeliever who's a member of our church false assurance of their salvation. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, you know that one guy that's sleeping with his, his father's wife that even, doesn't even happen among unbelievers? Okay, You know what he's doing? You actually are allowing him to continue to be a member in the church and I'm telling you to stop doing that. Get rid of him. Right? You're, you're doing harm to him by trying to... He, he probably thought he was fine. Hey, I'm coming to church. Yeah, I don't have the best life, but I'm coming to church. Everything's okay. It's like you need to, to get him out of there. And also, you're doing harm to the rest of the people, right? The people that he comes into contact with. Just picture this unbeliever. Okay, This guy very likely could have been a believer. He, he, it seems that he repented when it came to 2 Corinthians, so we won't get into all that. But, but, but let's say you have an unbeliever. He's a member of a church. You allow him to be a member of a church. He goes out in the community. He... Invo- is involved in all of the recreational and sinful activities that all of his unbelieving friends are. And what do they think now about Jesus Christ who that person represents? Right? They, they are representative of this church which is a representative of Christ. And, and they're saying, well, oh, they're a member of Ambassador Baptist Church. They must be a Christian. You see, it gives a wrong, it gives a wrong impression, a, a wrong... Um, a wrong explanation to a lost world who's watching that. And so we work hard to guard who comes into our church and we think it should only be believers. Our church is a reflection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of the church and and we ought to make sure that it is made up of only believers. So what do we do here in order to do that? Well, we guard the front door of the church and we open up the back door. We guard the front door of the church and we open up the back door. And what that means is, it doesn't mean that we don't allow people to come and visit our church. We love when guests come. We invite guests to come. We encourage you to do the same. They need to be under the sound of the Gospel. They need to see other believers interacting with one another. That, that's a good thing for them. But that's not what I'm talking about when I say we guard the front door of the church. The front door of the church is membership. It is whether or not a person should come into membership. And there are churches that treat non-Baptist churches that treat membership like it's a gym membership. That you can just kind of come as long as it's beneficial to you. We want to please you, so what, what is it that you want? And, and when you, it stops becoming beneficial to you, then you can go wherever you want. And, and we think that church is so important that, um, that we should guard the front door by guarding who comes into our church. And we think that only believers who have been baptized should join our church. And And we... And the way that we do that is we um, require people to join our church. They have to go through a church membership class. And they have to give a profession of faith and be baptized or 
So they haven't been baptized or saved, and they get saved and baptized and then join our church. We think that that's um, necessary in order for them to continue in their, their faithfulness, in order for us to, to hold them accountable, them to hold us accountable, uh, in, in order for us to to continue on in our lives. We, we can't live our Christian lives alone. We were not meant to. We were meant to be a part of something bigger, and we will be for all of eternity. So if... if, if um, if we're not a member of a church, then then we need to join one. We're going to be joining a large group of people. Maybe you know, I, I can't find this perfect group. Well, you're not going to find a perfect group, okay? Um, so so you need to find one that you're close to when it comes to doctrine and practice, and and join that church and commit yourself to it, and um, and uh, and and so that that responsibility to guard the front door is important. But it's also important to open up the back door, and that means. Um, that when it comes to sin, we need to be very serious about sin. Somewhat, not, not just any sin, but unrepentant sin. Serious and unrepentant sin needs to be dealt with. And so we open up the back door by being willing to remove people from membership. We, we did that not too long ago, didn't we? I mean, it was a sad time for our church. It was a sad time because we have family members that are still here. Uh, of that person who we had to remove from the church because of some unrep- serious and unrepentant sin. Now, we approached him in the right way, I thought. We we went to him by one and then with one or two more and then to the church, still didn't repent. And then we took it before the church and said, do you think we should remove him? Or actually, we recommend that we do remove him. And we did. And, and we don't like that, We do, but, but that's actually good for his soul. Shows him the seriousness of what he's done. And it's good for our for us to maintain our purity and its responsibility. I think not just the main, the deacons, but all of us as a whole. We need to maintain the purity of the church. All right. Any questions on that? As you see, I feel very strongly about this. Um, and I would recommend a really good book. It's actually, the, I think, the first book of the month that I recommended earlier this year. And it's called Church Membership. It's on the back of your handout. Church Membership by Jonathan Lehman. It's very small. Went through it with the deacons last year, and it was very encouraging for all of us. Um, just a really small book. Um, and uh, so it's not too hard to get through. You can just read chapter at a time before you go to bed or something. And, and you, you will do well to think through church membership. Um, it will be encouragement to you. Next, two offices. Okay, again, this is not distinctly Baptist. There are other churches that have just two offices, but we think that the Scriptures only um, record that there are two offices, that is, pastor and deacons. There are other offices that we have at our church and that we actually elect, but we don't think that those are necessarily necessary or permanent. Okay, so, so we don't have to have those. But pastor and deacons, those... You have to have in order to be a church. In order, say it this way: to be a church in good standing, be a church um, that's in order. And so, pastor is the one who deals primarily with oversight, and the deacons primarily deal with service of the church, so that the pastor can deal with oversight and his two primary responsibilities, which are to preach and to pray. So the deacons try to remove some of those um, burdens and responsibilities in order for him to do that. And I think there are lots of examples in Scripture. Maybe the clearest is Acts 6 when I think the first deacons were established where you had the apostles 
seeing a, an important issue in the church, the widows needed to be served. They felt like they were getting mistreated. And so the, the apostles, the leaders of the church at that time, were saying, you know, we don't think this is unimportant. We don't think, you know, just deal with it or, you know, just fix your attitude or something like that. It wasn't that at all. No, we think it's important. So you, church, congregation, you select from among you seven men who are able to, to handle this situation so that we, the apostles, can give ourselves to preaching and praying. Because we're not going to give up that responsibility. And I think that sets for us a model of what church life ought to look like, which is that the pastor should give himself to preaching and praying, praying primarily, and that the deacons ought to serve the church with regard to administrative and spiritual needs that are necessary to be taken care of. Um, so two offices. And then finally, separation. Separation. Again, this is another um, belief of ours that I think is important to us as Baptists, but it's not. Uh, it doesn't distinguish us from from other denominations. There are others that believe in separation, and there are three kinds of separation. You see there, personal, church, and civil. So personal separation. First John two fifteen. Right. All um, do not. Um, all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Um, I'm I'm really messing that up. Someone help me. First Tim, First John two fifteen to seventeen. Please. Thank you. Okay, so I kind of skipped right into the middle and missed the first part, which is do not love the world. Okay, that's the part we want to focus on, which is to separate ourselves personally from sin. We'll talk about, more about that this morning. There's a struggle that, that's going on in our soul between us and sin in Romans chapter 7. We'll see that. Um, so, first, personal. Then, second, church. Church uh, separation. So, we will not participate with other churches who deny the fundamentals of the faith. Um, we, we won't have a close association with any of those. So there's no denomination, there's no convention, there's no uh, a close association we're going to have with people who deny the faith. And that's something that we have to look at as a church and decide if we want to be a part of whatever association or fellowship that's, that's out there. But we think it's important that we, we guard ourselves as a church. Second John 1, 9-11. And then... Uh, Civil separation, we, we believe in separation of church and state. Um, that when it comes to cooperation uh, with the, the state, we need to recognize that there are different levels that, that have taken place over the centuries. There has been the church over the state. The church is the authority, and they rule the state. That would be the Holy Roman Empire, Constantinople, and, and beyond. Uh, then the state over the church. The state rules over the church. And so you have some totalitarian countries like that even today. And then you have the church alongside of the state where you have people who are both in a position of authority within the church and they're also an authority that, that actually makes them uh, 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 an authority in the government as well. We believe that, that it's most helpful for the church to be free from the state and that we determine what we believe, how we practice. We don't let the state determine 
you know, whether or not we should have a homosexual on staff here or something like that. Um, we we believe that the, that the church is best when it's it's free from the state. So those are the separation uh, ones that I think are important, and I think the Baptists think that they are important. So those those are the eight main beliefs that would that that we would hold to very strongly. And the two that are most important, I think, are the the way that we practice our ordinances and saved church membership. Those are the ones that distinguish us from, I think, all other denominations. Any questions on any of that? Any comments? Yeah. Um, I I don't know enough about that to, to be able to answer, but but I do know that you know once the popes started becoming established in you know the early centuries of the church, then they went back to that and kind of forced that on what they wanted to believe. So um, that that was not something that the apostles taught that that, that Peter would somehow hand down by succession his authority, his keys. You know they used that the keys to the kingdom. They were passed on to Peter. Well, now they're passed on to each individual pope and now they have the keys to the kingdom. I think, yeah, I think it was a heresy of the first rate, um, you know, derived from the very pit of hell. Well, Christ was definitely saying something about Peter and his responsibility, but he wasn't establishing a pope through Peter. Is what? Exactly, he's building on a, really on the all the apostles, I think. You know. Yes, I mean not not to say that Peter was a rock. I don't necessarily think that's heresy. I think that to say that Peter was the first pope is heresy. Yeah, Ken. Right. Yeah. Yes, Jonathan. Good. Um, that's a good qualification because we don't want to say, well, we don't have. They're not our authority. We can do whatever we want. We, we're, um, we're anarchists in that way. We're not. Um, we do believe Romans 13 says, submit to your human government, your human unbelieving, wicked government, which in that time was Nero for Paul. Okay, so that's a serious command that he's giving there. Uh, however, when it comes to what we should believe or how we should practice. If it is essential to the Scriptures and to our faith, then we, we can't obey them over God. That's the point. I think that's the distinction that Jonathan wants to make and I think is a good one. Um, so how did Peter say it in Acts 5? You know, we would rather obey God rather than men. 
So there are some cases. Now, now sometimes we use our supposed liberty, our, our freedom. Hey, we're free from you to, to do whatever we want. So if we, you know, let's say we wanted to use, well, I'll, I'll give you the example I've used before, which is to put out a sign for Vacation Bible School. Okay, we, we did this one year, and we got a, a notice from the city that said you're not allowed to do that um, without a permit. And we're like, well, we're trying to get people in here to get saved, and you're telling us we can't do it? Now, is the Scripture clear that we have to have a sign out for VBS? No. Okay, so in that case, we can obey the government and obey God at the same time by taking the sign down, which is what we did. Now, since then, what we've done is we've just gotten a permit. We didn't realize that, that was that was wrong for us to do that before, so now we just get a permit every year, and we obey the government while still obeying God. Now, what if they said, you can never have a sign again? You need to take down all of your signs. Could we still be a church? Yes. You know? What if they didn't let us even have our Ambassador Baptist Church sign? Could we still be a church? Yes. See, those types of things are not essential to our faith or to the Scriptures, so we can still obey the government, even when it's so bizarre and out there. Like, why would, we want, why would that matter? It doesn't matter. God's placed them over us. They are His servants in some regard, and so we obey them as long as they're not telling us to do something that's essential to the faith. Then we disobey them. Good. Thank you for that, Jonathan. That was helpful. All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for um, how you brought us to this place. We love our church. We love um, our our Savior. We love the Word. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful to our Savior, to the Word, and um, that we would be proponents of of Him and displaying His glory. And we long to see the day when, when we will be joined with all believers of all tribes and kindred and tongues and nations to praise that one who has slain for us and who now lives for us. In Jesus' name, amen.